welcome to Midnight Bath, where stories get told and we talk about stories. Today, here in the internet studio, we have Ross Guerco, New York City, Banking and Finance, Peter Sobchak, editor of Building Magazine and Canadian Interiors, and feature filmmaker Lear Pristine, his new film, Flory has just finished its run at the Chinese Theater in Los Angeles. And we are here to talk about the article by Betty S. Flowers about roles in the storytelling process. Uh, for those of you who don't know, there's going to be a link in the show notes uh, where you can find out some more information. But uh, Betty Flowers divides the writing process into four roles, the madman, the architect, the carpenter, and the judge. And the idea is to keep those roles separate so the judge doesn't interfere with the madman, madman doesn't interfere with the carpenter, and vice versa. Uh, we have some questions for our uh, guests. And uh, the first question is, Betty Flowers divides the creative writing process into four roles, madman, architect, carpenter, judge. How does this compare with your own process now that you think about it? Uh, Ross. My, my process has been fairly difficult. It's, um, I'm not even sure how to put it in words, but it, um, when you sit there and you're, you know, you're, you're writing something, you you really are struggling for words, so it's it's enlightening to to understand you know this this process from Betty Flowers, you know to have the four different roles, and position yourself in each one of these these characters. And I think, you know, we might lean towards one or the other, um, more often than than we like. I think, and um, not that. I mean, this is the first that I've heard of, you know, uh, taking this approach and using this technique. I think, I think if anything, I probably would be, you know, more of an architect, you know, to try to get the right words and not necessarily a madman. Um, the madman approach, though, is, is sounds, sounds really good. So just to clarify, may I interject? Sure. These four roles are meant to be invoked in succession. The madman yeah. is the one who can create but cannot judge. Right. The architect takes large blocks of material, moves them around to create a rough structure. The carpenter works at the sentence level, and then the judge evaluates the work, and you can go through the process several times. If you're more of an architect, are you saying that the part of the process you like the most is when you've actually gone through the creative phase, however you see it, and you have some material to work with and you've started arranging it into blocks uh, in a structure that makes sense to you. Is that where it starts to become uh, pleasurable yeah. for you? It does. Yeah. It, the, the, the madman part is where it's, it's the most challenging, you know, to kind of tease out the ideas and, you know, um, like have an idea like uh, instinctively and then, you know, try to put words to it. 
So, but I, I do like this approach, you know, uh, the, each, each one of these stages, it, uh, it sounds like it might make it more, more appealing overall. That's very interesting, Russ. If I may, I think that the approach for me, I don't, I, me personally, I don't think I can go one, two, three, four. For me, I think I'm bouncing between all of them simultaneously. And the first thing I try to do is madman approach. The first thing, you know, blank page, my instinct always is, okay, what do writers do? They put words on a piece of paper. So what I do, people, oh, how do you write? How do you write? I, I really am not that brilliant at it. I just, my goal is, okay, and what, I, I, what I'm good at, I can fill pages. Quality is another story. So I, I think what I'm doing is I'm usually flicking between the madman and the architect, and I will call the architect the editor in my case. Um, the trick is I'm writing for film, let's say where, where Ross is writing for financial programs and Pete's writing for like a trade magazine, uh, you know, they're very different than what I'm doing. Uh, so my, the trick I have, which is tricky, is I'm writing for film, and the madman in me wants to start writing crazy shit. But <laughs> I always keep thinking, I'm like, okay, where, you know, where I am now is arguably I'm in a place where everything I should, everything I'm writing arguably should be able to be shot. Um, and film is a collaborative medium, blah, blah, blah. So for me, it's always tricky. I'm working on a werewolf story and I'm thinking, okay, let the madman go. But then I think, oh, really? Okay, I need the Vatican there and I need this there and I need all these crazy things. So it's a really weird, tricky dance that's very complicated. Where for, for Pete, I would think I kind of envy his position in a way because he has an audience and they're expecting a certain thing. Where arguably, my work is more, I'm not going to use the word creative, but more can be more abstract, crazier, um, inventive, let's say. Where if I'm writing about a building, I can't really digress too much. So for me, these roles are really tricky. And I don't know if it would behoove me to approach it one, two, three, four. Um, I don't want to talk too much, so I'll let somebody else take the yeah, I should. I should. Let me just interject for a second here because there's an assumption that's made that each one of us is, are, are writing or catering to a particular audience. When I when I spoke, I was I was speaking uh, strictly of uh, creative writing, you know, be it a poem, a story, a short story, um, a um, a film. Yeah, that that's uh, what I was uh, speaking to. I wasn't speaking to, you know, business writing where it could be very perfunctory and and you know very logical in statements, and then statements aren't even really full sentences or full paragraphs. You know, they, 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 they may even be just bullet points when it comes to business writing. So, you know, again, I, I was uh, directing my comments towards uh, creative writing. And I'll, okay. I'll do the same thing. Um, in fact, much of uh, what Alir said and much of what Ross said, all in a different way, uh, kind of echo to a certain degree. Because like Ross says, if we're focusing on creative writing, I'm not sure how much I can bring to that as far as discussing a process or my assessment of a process as it relates to creative writing, because to be completely transparent, I don't do 
much creative writing at all anymore. In fact, I have spent so much time in my writing career uh, honing in on a more standard journalistic technique that uh, I almost now default to that setting mentally and writing with a journalistic background or journalistic sort of tone that drives uh, how you approach a subject is a very different one than the creative process. Uh, I can explain a little bit. I've been thinking about actually how I do what I do and how I work with other journalists um, as well. As an editor, I work with writers quite a bit and, but you know, they're not doing creative writing. They're, fulfilling assignments and i've been thinking since i read that betty flowers article how different my process is i mean i could distill it and say that and this echoes a bit what alir said where he sees sort of two roles i I would uh, agree for me i'm both writing and editing at the same time so i am i am architect and judge at the same time i don't think i do much mad manning anymore um I thought about this actually when I first read that article that a long time ago, probably like, you know, many 17, 18 years ago when I was dipping my toe in the the pool of trade journalism, I still had the creative writing bone in me. And so I would just kind of blurt onto a page, whatever I was thinking uh, in terms of in relation to the assignment I'd been given and then winnow it down to a, a usable piece. But that, that feels so far in the past that feels like I'm if I think about that it feels like I'm looking at a high school kid trying to churn out an essay or something it's light years from how I feel where I am now where I am quite a bit in um, sort of autopilot mode where what I do almost comes naturally, but it's because I've trained myself for 17 years to write in a very specific style. I would disagree with Alir a bit. It's For me, it's not about the audience. I can do what I do for any audience. But what I do is, um, for lack of a better word, what I do is journalism. And for me, what that is, is first and foremost, I do research. I find core pieces of uh, facts or commentary or something uh, that is really the heart of what my piece is going to be. And I build around that, Um, you know, pieces uh, like foundational elements like quotes um, where I interviewed someone or I'm taking an interview that someone did for some other outlet Uh, factoids like uh, stats about the building or the, the city or the art piece or whatever. And then I'm building around that to get to, uh, the underlying point of what I'm writing, which is explaining what this thing is about and why it's important and all that other stuff. The other thing too, that really, if you give me a second, I know I'm rambling a bit, but really important. And it relates back to what I said for the, uh, during the first podcast is how much I love structure. And I know when I'm coming into a story that I have a certain amount of space, I have 1800 words or I have 600 words or, you know, if I'm writing a column, I have 550 words. Can't go too, too much less than that. Certainly can't go more than that because it's going to get cut because there's only so much on the page. All these things. These structures are really useful for me to the so much so, in fact, that that helps me figure out what I need to do before while the page is still blank. So I don't just 
I don't, I don't use the madman technique at all anymore. It ultimately is kind of a waste of time for me because what's the point in me writing 2,800 words when I know for a fact it needs to be 900 words? Why did I waste my time then? I feel you've answered the question because you've shown us how this, uh, you've shown us how the roles according to Betty Flowers compare with your own process. But in understanding what you said, you might give another name to the role of the madman, but in the framework of the article, that that is the role which can create. So in your research, as you gather materials, in a sense, it sounds like you're outsourcing the creative original material generation to your sources. And still, though, you must select which sources to use. And you can let the madman out in an open field in the extended metaphor of the article, or you can let the madman out in a tiny cage. And still, the madman can do its job. It can do its job in 550 words. It can do its job in 900 words. It can do its job within the constraints that you set for it. But still, there has to be a role in the framework where you focus on generating material however you see it before you arrange the material. And you're saying that in your process, you rapidly cycle between gathering material, arranging it, gathering material, arranging it. And I venture to guess it's because you've internalized the frameworks and dimensions and requirements of your profession where someone just entering the field would have to do those things very consciously and deliberately. Yeah, I, 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 have I would a, agree with I that. I have a question uh, for Pete. Is there, a, okay. is there a brainstorming session in your process along the way? Or I guess you, or you have the quotes and that's so your bedrock, it depends who. Say. It depends what I'm working on. So when I'm writing my own pieces, when I'm writing my own bylines, of, there's no brainstorming because there's no one to brainstorm with. And I already know it's, I, I, you know, in an awkward way, I am, I am my own. I, mean, editor, it, I am my own assigner. So I know what I want. Forgive me. This is a, this is a, a tortured metaphor. I know, but I am my own assigner, which means I know what I'm looking for. So when I'm writing my own byline, there's no brainstorming. I know how to make me happy, but there, there are, I wouldn't call them brainstorming so much as fleshing out sessions when I'm working with freelancers, especially someone where I give them an assignment on a story that I have completely mapped out what I want out of that story. So for what it's worth, I'll, I'll, I'll differentiate my sort of my professional experience. I have a lot of people that come to, to me and pitch me with stories fairly well. If they're good at what they do, they're fairly well fleshed out stories uh, or pitches, I should say, um, where really all I need to do is green light it or red light it. And then we talk money. Um, I give a, obviously some feedback who, if, you know, if I think someone should be added or a, a building should be taken out of the equation, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's if I've been pitched on something. If I am assigning a story that I want written to a freelancer who I know is relatively good at what they do, I'm the, the researcher in me maps out pretty clearly what I'm looking for. And I'm not just talking the mechanics like length and all the, you know, how to, how many of the words are body versus cut lines versus whatever. It's not just that. It's also like, here's the story I want. Here's my idea. Here's why these six 
uh, you know, names I've given you are important to help flesh out the story, blah, blah, blah. But then there is a kind of a, you know, a back, I hand that to them. And then if they're good, they call me up and say, okay, here's, I see what you're saying. I also have these ideas, how it connects to your storyline. I heard this guy said something at an event. He's a big shot, blah, blah, blah. And he said these things that's relevant to this topic. Maybe we can include him, whatever. And there's a back and forth about that. Um, so that's, again, but even there, that's a bit of a refinement. No, no writer has ever come back. No, like no, I, I've never handed an assignment to a writer and then received a response from that writer where the writer says, are you insane? This is the dumbest story I've ever seen. What you really should do is this because every writer knows if they ever did that to an <laughs> editor, they would never get another assignment from that editor again. So that's just stupid business. But there is a somewhat natural back. And this is why I have a pretty close group of freelancers I work with regularly because they know what I'm looking for. They know the tone of the magazine and all the other sort of, uh, you know, nebulously fleshy bits. Uh, that's just important to, if you want to be a professional journalist, things you need to know. Uh, and then we say, you know, we come to a conclusion and then away they go. They write the story. Does that answer your question earlier? So, yeah, it does. Well, just to, just to summarize, because I'd like to hear Elir's answer to the first question, how the process compares with the zone process. What you hand them is the story, and then they come yeah. back with the telling. Would you say that's I, accurate, I, I, I give okay. them the idea. Yeah. yeah, for lack of a better way, yeah. I, I give them the idea for the story, and they come back with the story. Yeah. With the yeah. telling. They tell it. You give them the story. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a fan of um, sort of a, as, as much as I said in the first podcast that I am a big fan of structure. I'm not a fan of trying to find taxonometric uh, structures for their, for their own sake to give uh, some kind of uh, easy to understand, easy to digest meaning to a very hard process, which is why I didn't really like the four um, characters in Betty Flowers piece. Um, but you know, I'm not, we're, we're talking about it. So we're talking about it, but I mean, I don't, I don't like the, the, the arbitrariness of those four. Cause for me, one of the big glaring omissions in that, even for creative writers is I don't know who of those four titles would be considered the researcher. It seemed all four were related to the creative process, which means giving birth to something within you. Okay. I get it. That's important in the creative writing process, but equally important is research. And I don't know who of the other, who of those four titles would do that job. They're all just really, uh, from the madman on down, their job is just to refine, refine what's been blurted onto the page. So to me in journalism, especially research is so important. Well, I think from all of you, I've gotten some very good takeaways. From Ross, I've understood that depending on the individual, you'll be more comfortable with one role over another. And from Elir, I've learned that he moves between roles, and uh, that's interesting too. I tend to go in a circle myself. From Pete, he's... Uh, quite accurately uh, made explicit something that probably Betty Flowers uh, makes implicit 
that there is a researcher, but that's very useful because if you did have a researcher, would you put it before the madman? No. I imagine when you're gathering After your materials, the madman, between the madman and the architect. Okay, that's very interesting. Because in my process, I tend to gather things throughout the year. That's my research phase. So I always have something yeah. to be the seed of Yeah, I've my done the same thing phase. over the years. I've kept uh, reams and reams of notes, of lines, of paragraphs, of stories that are almost fully baked, just missing accuracy <laughs> meaning i don't have a quote i don't have a project i don't have something in the real world going on that that half story would beautifully illustrate if i was trying to make a point about something and all those all those notes came from the madman now i just need to find a researcher to give it relevance but again to alir's point that's the difference between what i do which is you know i can't I can't just say this is 1800 words of the crazy ramblings of Peter Sobchak on the page of building magazine. Please give it relevance when probably wouldn't uh, versus um, creative writing, which is you're investing in one person's crazy ramblings, whether you like it or not. Well, that's the point. Go Before ahead, the madman, um, you, you could, you could say that there's um, an inspirational, idea or event or something along those lines that put that embarks you on this you know journey but i'm sorry peter you were gonna you were gonna say something i just wanted to make clear that i'm not grading these i'm not saying that one creative writing is less valuable than journalism i'm just saying i've spent all of my life well not the vast majority of my life uh honing journalism so the process of creative writing is a little more of a out there thing um which is why it's harder for me to explain or speak to that side of things but i'm not saying one's better than the other so just because i say some creative writing is uh where we invest in the ramblings of one person versus uh journalism which is an uh, an aggregate of experts and facts and all that melded together into a narrative that comes to a useful conclusion i'm not saying one's more important than the other i'm just saying they are very different and like, you know, peanut butter, you instantly know the difference between chunky and smooth. It doesn't mean one's better than the other. Mm, well, peanut thank butter. you, Peter. I, I couldn't fully agree with you there because uh, I want to ask Alir about how uh, his own process when he was writing the script for Flory uh, compares to this. But before I do, you know, you're saying the creative writing and journalism are very different. And that's very interesting because I'm not disagreeing with you when I say I see them as very, very similar in a certain way. And, and what I mean by that is the creative writing process is the journalism of an interior experience. And journalism is of an exterior experience, but both need to be grounded in Ooh, reality. Well said. Well said. I would love like to explore that, that more reality. because I think that's yes, loaded. Because... I don't disagree with it, but I think that is such a loaded assessment that to really understand it requires like deep unpacking because if you're saying essentially they're the same thing, it's just the internal versus the external, then I would love to put a pure creative writer on the stand and get them to, to explain the way a journalist can explain 
where their sources are, how they've been vetted. I mean, I, I've been trained. I've been trained by experts uh, to uh, not to, to make sure that my process is infallible to the point where I can't be sued for something. I don't think any creative writer has ever been, Bilan, maybe you can correct me on this. I'd love to hear a story if that proves me wrong, but I don't know of any creative writer that's been sued because the content of their internal um, writings uh, were, were, bound, were, were grounds for legal action. Well, Pete, I think the record will show that I didn't say they're the same. I said that they have some similarities. And I'm fascinated by the similarities. I agree with you. The stories, yeah. the stories that I find appealing that other people write have deep internal consistency. Okay. And you're not going to sue the writer for being inconsistent with something he wrote in chapter one when it's chapter 13. But still... I'm certain that there's going to be less satisfaction than with a fully realized Lord of the Rings. And he did a lot of research for that, but it was an interior journey. But I want to come to Alir because I want to know how this process compares with your process for uh, writing a feature screenplay. Uh, because Floyd was your second screenplay correct. and the first one you shot. Yes. Um, listening to you guys, very interesting. I think the carpenter role who's working at the sentence level for me, that's is the last phase. So for me, it's madman. So again, it comes to Ross, I guess, what's the germ of an idea. So let's say for Flory, a woman is dating three guys. Okay. So you madman goes, you start writing, you start filling page. Okay. I have 20 pages here. What do I have? And then, and the judge, I kind of disregard the judge. Like, is it good? Is it not good? The goal for me is fill pages and figure it out later. So then the architect, which I'll equate with an editor, which is a very fun process for me, is you write 30 pages. You don't even really know where it's going. You just write 30 pages. You fill pages. And the architect says, okay, what do I have here? And then the architect says, ah, okay. Put this over here. Put that over there. And then you just you're like, oh, this is a story about loss. And then you start writing another 30 pages. And some of it's good, some of it's bad. And then the architect, and I have all those, let's say I have 80 pages and the judge is still sleeping. He's in his chambers doing nothing. Um, and then the architect starts putting stuff around. And I actually, if you're talking about process, I will actually write out scenes or ideas for scenes, type them out, get scissors, cut them all up. And I literally put them on a huge table and I'm just moving stuff around literally physically with my hands, little scraps of paper with scenes and concepts. And that's where the architect in. And then I go back to the madman. The madman fills more stuff out. The architect at the end puts everything in order. And then I guess the last step would be the carpenter, i.e. the at the sentence level. And I'm like, okay, that line kind of sucks. This monologue is too long, cut it down and this and that and the other. But again, uh, I guess I don't know what I'm writing. It comes back to us. I have an idea, a germ, and I go from I there. I think there's... Um... And then at the end, the architect realized, okay, this is a story about love and loss and grief or what have you. I was just going to say to um, add to what Alir is uh, speaking of, I, I, would, I would say in addition to the, that whole creative process in terms of 
coming up with a screenplay, there's there is a a narrative, you know, to Lear's point that he's trying to you know construct, and and once he does complete that on paper, then the 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 other part that needs to be taken into consideration for for this uh, creative process would be. How do how does this translate into actual images and sound, and yeah. and will it be practical? Yes. You know, one page is one minute. You know, one page of dialogue is about about one minute of screen time. But is every page? I mean, how married are you to the words? I mean, I guess this is a question for Alir. For me, I would when I do that, and, I would and- be flexible with it, and and uh, go with the practicality of the of the filming of the of the story itself and you know trying to put together a narrative that way but yes but, uh, but that's a question for totally you. and 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 this and and uh, where i'm kind of jealous or i envy pete and Dylan and ross in many many ways other than their great beautiful handsome looks is that they have much 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 less plastic materials they have to deal with you know little to no technology Little to no lighting, sound, etc. All the encumbrances of doing a cinematic piece. Um, but to go with the, the the word for word that Ross is talking about, let's call him the carpenter working at a sentence level. Many, many times when I shot my feature, you know, a line is not working, or I think it's amazing, and the actress says they just do their own line, and it's just much, much better. So in a way, where you guys are the carpenters. In another way, the actors are carpenters. The final say almost. I mean, essentially I have the final say, but in many ways, Alira, can I do something different? Yeah, go ahead. You do another take, you're like, wow, you just made me sound brilliant. That's what we're going with. Um, so yeah, I, I, that, so that's, I guess, that interior to what Pete was saying, that interior of me sitting at a typewriter being the madman goes to the external of an actor saying, well, this is, too hard for me to say and that doesn't sound natural for me to say it and they change it so they become the carpenter externally from the written page um so that's something that i've learned that that'll probably always happen in the future um i've heard some you know uh ingmar bergman's actress was like he wanted every word there was no ad-libbing there was no changing words there was no improvising his words were his words he was militant my words that's it. End of story. Um, and everybody has their approach. But for me, yeah, that external, it just, it makes my writing final piece I found so far in my career much, much better. Um, where you guys are the judge, jury, and executioner, especially for Pete and especially for Ross, actually, where Buland is doing more creative writing. But for Ross and Pete, there's outside forces that are expecting more for Ross, probably, that okay, you're doing writing, financial program writing, it's got to be like this. It's got to work, true. blah, 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 blah. Like there's all this brainstorming. But in the end, you know, Ross is dealing with literally millions of dollars in the banking system. It's got to be a certain way. If my line sucks in my film, eh, it's not a big deal. The audience says, oh, that's a bad line. But for Ross and probably Pete too, who has a readership expecting and paying for his magazine, they have less latitude. I'd like to ask Ross a question on that topic. Sure. Ross, would you say, thank you. Ross, would you say that there are several ways 
to say something in the types of documents you draft and some of those ways have greater Absolutely. clarity than others. There's so there is there is there's uh, quite a bit of creativity actually when you when you get down to it, but fundamentally it has to be very succinct and understandable of your of your audience. One of the the most creative documents. I mean, it might be the mode of communication um, itself that you know uh, makes it more uh, like a creative vehicle. But a PowerPoint presentation, for example, is very powerful. It's not quite like a film, of course, because there's many elements uh, when you're putting a film together. But, you know, it's very two-dimensional, but it, it really depends on your, your presentation of the material, your understanding of the material, and what's actually presented in the, in the presentation itself. Because you, you, when you're communicating, it's usually you know, a group of people, like three or more people where you're presenting a PowerPoint, for example, and and um, it, it, what you show on the screen, you don't want them to just be reading, you know, every, like, line by line. They, they need to see sort of a visual, like a diagram of some sort, you know, that is shaped differently, you know, to emphasize the points that you're making. And there's, there's a certain uh, symmetry as well when you go from slide to slide, font size, color choice. You know, there's a, there's a number of things that, uh, that really, you know, drive the message. So there's, there's uh, a, a quite a bit of, you know, sort of, you know, it's a sort of a creative process, although, you know, it's like a color by numbers. But I've, like, I've seen some people create some of the most powerful PowerPoint presentations I've ever seen. And then there's others where it's just, it's, it's like looking at a book on a screen, you know, it's just line by line of script. So, you know, the PowerPoint is definitely a, a mode of communication in business. That's, you know, very significant. And, and uh, al along with email, everyone is familiar with email. Emails are, you know, becoming more and more brief, you know, there's significant, um, um, you know, brevity in, in terms of uh, word selection, you know, how you, how you label your subject uh, when, you know, the subject title, you know, like if you start a, a subject, FYI, for example, you know that it's going to be an informative email. It's not something that's important you know, for the, for your reader to, 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 to spend, you know, a lot of, a lot of time on. So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of different, you know, okay. there's, a, there's a few like email, PowerPoint, you know, and then you have your, you know, business requirement documents or, um, you know, service level agreements, you know, there's all these different types of documents that have a very specific format as well. Well, I was looking for some evidence, and I think you've provided it, that the way you shape the information uh, crafts a narrative which can push people in one direction or another. The classic example is if you ask British citizens if Britain should adopt the euro, which is not going to happen now, obviously, you'll get a certain number of respondents 
saying yes, some no, and you would expect the same ratio if you ask them, should Britain abolish the pound? But you don't, even though it's semantically the same question. And I think that with business reports, as soon as you get to an analytical report, there are so many different ways to structure the information that can lead people to uh, different decisions uh, through the structure itself. But I want to ask all of you the third question, because maybe if we have time, we can come back to the second question. Uh, tell us something about your own process that you imagine is obvious for other people, because I've learned that what's obvious to the individual is very often non-obvious to others. And I'd like to test that tonight. Assigns. Okay. Who would like you to go first? Me? I nominate Pete. Okay. So I, nominate, I, I second Pete. Um, yes. Well, you know what? I'll try to make my answer actually match my answer. A <laughs> uh, little, little rhetorical do do there. Um, what I consider to be uh, sacred in my process is a word that Ross has already used, um, and very accurately, uh, the word brevity. I actually find great value and, and poetry and beauty in brevity. Uh, uh, I'm sure, obviously, your listeners know George Orwell, but most people know George Orwell as a novelist, uh, Animal Farm, 1984. But his most uh, um, influential piece for me was a piece he wrote once he left what his first career was, and a lot of people don't know this, um, being a novelist was his second career. His first career was a journalist. And he wrote a book. You mean Homage to Catalonia? In terms or of Down and Out in Paris and London? Peace? I'm talking about on writing. Well, which one are you talking he about? Wrote, he wrote one of the most important oh. uh, little treatises uh, slash manuals for journalists, um, although it's not all often categorized as such, but any journalist who reads it knows or who has it assigned to them in their journalism 101 class would pick it out immediately. It's a, it's a manual for journalists. And he said something in there that is burned into my brain is basically one of the pillars of my process. And he's basically said, why say something in 30 words when you can say it in 10? And I thousand percent agree with him. So I'm always looking for ways to cut down sentences, not to the point where they're Twitter sized sentences, which are absurd, but I'm, I'm really looking to cut out the superfluous. Um, so for me, to answer your question, Bilan, you say uh, a part of my process that is obvious to me, but might not be obvious to others. Keep it, keep it simple. <laughs> the, the kiss principle, keep it simple, stupid. Um, or more accurately, the George Orwell quote why say something in 30 words when you can say it in 10 keep it short brevity is your friend and uh, it's actually a lot harder to do that well than you think i think i think well, um, i think an author that was a master at um you know word choice and you know brevity but at the same time captured your imagination you know i think we all know uh ernest hemingway he he was a, oh, yeah. i think he was a master at that absolutely he is he is fantastic not just for his uh tight style his incredibly tight uh succinct style but also his his language he he wasn't flowery he spoke in a poetic everyman tone which was just 
fantastic. I agree with you, Ross. Hemingway is, yeah. is a really good model for not getting caught up in your own uh, awesomeness, which so many writers yeah. fall into. Yeah, if I, if I might add as well, I mean, it really depends on, you know, since we are talking to, a, like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure your audience is uh, multilingual. And it, it, I would imagine uh, the, yes. the choice of language that you, you know, either A, think in or B, you know, communicate in. Um, you know, it's been said that Latin is a representative um, or most representative of, of an exact thought. Your, your exact thought, your exact, the, the words are so exact. Of and representative of what you're thinking in your own mind, it's it's uh it's it's almost a perfect language in that sense. That that's what's uh, what's been said about, you know, the ancient Latin language, and and now with so many different languages, especially English, you know, when if if you're able to think in different languages, it it helps, um, you know, become you know become more succinct with uh, with the ideas that that you have and um like with Eng- english is such a such a broad language and there's just so many words that mean so many things and that's why when you read a legal document there's like multiple multiple words you know just to get to that exactness of the concept of what you're trying to capture in that legal sentence you know whereas if if the document was written in latin it would probably be, you know, a hundred pages shorter. So. I'd like to point something out about legal documents. However, I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, that a legal document is striving to completely eliminate any possible conceivable ambiguity, which tends to uses more words. Whereas in creative writing, it's a question of how much can you trust your audience to know what you mean based on the words that you leave on the page. Because at the carpenter uh, role in my writing process, I am trying to shorten sentences, eliminate sentences, because my aim is to keep the pace of the scene moving the way I want it to whether that's very fast or leisurely, whatever that is, I want the pacing to be tight. And very often that means eliminating some words that might make my meaning more explicit, but I need to trust that the reader has an imagination and will add their own egg in the words of Bernard Williams. And I want to thank Pete for reminding me about that article from Orwell, because I love Homage to Catalonia. I love Down and Out in Paris and London. I've read them both twice. And I'd completely forgotten about on writing. I must find that old article and dig it up from the interwebs. Um, Ross, what about you? Ilir? Yeah, if I can just uh, acknowledge Pete's little thing about brevity. Uh, He's a journalist, stock and trade. It's implanted in him. He probably can't get rid of it. It would take some major rewiring of his brain. Why say something in 30 (laughs) words when you can say it in 10? That's great. I loved your answer, Pete. But I'd rather have heard that answer than an answer in 30 words. 
to me, I, I'm slightly opposite. I mean, I'm coming from a more creative standpoint. To me, that was a great answer. Any shorter, it would suck, to be honest, for me. Um, uh, and I'll, I'm going to answer your question, this, the third question. Because they, you know, these big shots, they want to, you know, big budget. We got to make it, dumb it down. We can't, we got to force feed people. It's just, they're, they're cutting it so to the bone. There's no meat for me personally. Um, but I understand completely where Pete's coming from. I mean, you can't poo-poo. You got to give facts and, and stuff like that. Um, okay. Sure. If, if I can just, just to, like, just give me two seconds, though. I agree with you. I love meat. I love meat on the bone. You know what Orwell was referring to? And, well, I'm going to editorialize uh, and paraphrase what he was referring to. It's fat. Cut the fat off the bone. Just leave the meat. Obviously, the bone on itself is, is, uh, you know, uh, punctuation, you could argue. There's no words. There's structure, but no words. There's no meat. It's the fat Mm. that people need to cut. So to answer your second question, stating what might not be obvious – to people um because two you know i made a, a feature film which is great i wrote another one and people are like oh Lear, how do you do this 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 and these are people that are far better writers than me believe me um so my statement to the obvious would be and i truly truly believe this we're all writers you just got to take a pen to paper and fill pages i i really and i think people forget that oh i need a structure what are my characters doing? Let me write a backstory. And, and they, they talk themselves out of doing stuff. We're all writers. My niece is five years old and she's scribbling down words. The cat is eating the mouse. She's a writer. You are a writer. Fill the goddamn page. Some people are better than others, obviously, but, you know, fill the page. It sounds so dumb, but it's true. You just have to put it on paper. And that's it. So what you do and, and is I you think put that's the, the difference. What and that's, what people that's perceive me as a writer. That you think is obvious. That's the difference. That's the only thing I'm doing that they're not. Quality. Let's call it subjective. It's irrelevant as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And my niece is doing it for free, and she's five years old. Well, here's here's a question for you. Do, do you think uh, knowing more than one language oh, yeah. uh, helps in the Absolutely, creative process 100%. and or yeah, make you I'm, a better my writer? My time's pretty good. Bjorn has four languages. Um, absolutely, hundred percent. Again, too, it comes down to like one word can mean several things. In Italian, it's amazing to me. You know, one word can mean three or four different things, even five, depending on tone of delivery. Uh, English, not so much. I mean, just, you know, for example, French, Italian, Spanish have the masculine feminine, um, which for me, the hardest thing for Italian is the masculine feminine. Okay, is the son masculine, feminine, and there's neutral. English cuts all that out. It makes it simple. A cat is a cat. A cat, an apple is an apple. That's it. It's all neutral. Um, but, you know, I'd love to be in Bulen's brain, who's on his fourth language now. Uh Yeah. That would be great. And so, yes, to answer your question, there's no doubt about it. And you just, when you know two languages or more, you just, you admire language more. You're more sensitive to it. You you get, you, you're more excited by it. You can hear language and appreciate it better. Where somebody might say something, even though it's slightly out of the norm, the average person might not pick up on it. It's 
uniqueness. But if you have second language, you're like, oh, he said that in a really cool, non-obvious way or put a twist on something. If, speaking of putting twists on something, if I can put a twist on what you're talking about in terms of language, I've had this conversation many times with people, you know, what languages would you like to learn? And if I had the magic ability to snap my fingers and give myself a new language, I've often thought the one I would wow. like yeah. is sign language. I find that fascinating. Wow. We're all, you're talking about a lot of so, – so do I. And primarily because sign language does exactly what I'm preaching, which is it forces you to – actually, Ross, you made a fantastic point about Latin, as, and which is true. As far as the phonetic languages, Latin probably is one of the most succinct but you know what's even yeah. more succinct? Sign language. You ever watch someone give a political speech and there's a, uh, someone signing right next to them and the guy is rambling on, the, the politician is rambling, and you know he's saying hundreds of words, and in three hand motions, the guy standing beside him transmits that. Now, none of us are deaf. None of us really know uh, what's being lost in translation. But I got to say, as far as a motive of transmission of content – getting the point across the brevity of sign language amazes me, blows my mind. So anyway, there you go. Yeah. You're right, Pete. It has to be sure. elegant. It's yeah, certainly because, an elegant language. Yes. You can be conveying just the facts, but then you're not really conversing. And we know for a fact that deaf people are conversing. They're very artistic, just like anyone else. So yeah, somehow in that, in, in the distillation of the hand movements or body gestures, of sign language they are able to still speak in a poetic way but it blows my mind how they're able to really just just like a laser beam narrow it down to what's really necessary and cut out the fat english is a fatty language french is a fatty language you know these these are these are languages that that groan under its own pomposity half the time sign language wow you're in and out in five I'm seconds Anyway. <laughs> wow. So, Ross, tell us what's something obvious about your own process in your mind that you imagine is obvious? Because I'm sure it's not I'm obvious. I'm not sure what others. you mean by your question. I mean, obvious to me or obvious to others or? Obvious. Well, if you imagine it's obvious for other people, you imagine it's obvious. So tell us something obvious about your process, because I've noticed just like what Elir said and what Pete said, brevity to Pete is obvious. And yet if it was obvious to everybody, why do so many texts look the way they do? Florid, overwrought writing. And if, and if what Elir sees as obvious were obvious to everyone, we'd have a lot more fiction in the world. We'd have a lot more writers. Everyone would be a writer. It wouldn't be some uh, specialist distinction. Everyone would live their life and also write about it and write whatever they wanted. And they don't. So I'll, I'll tell you something that's a, a little bit insightful that is sort of obvious, but is, is not really obvious. My family history and, and family, like my parents and my relatives, you know, the folks I grew up with, they have um, very much an oral history. And I noticed that what happens from generation to generation is that they communicate, you know, various stories. They don't start like in, in contemporary times and in business especially, 
where you where you start with uh, the conclusion, you know, the point that you're trying to get at. You don't start with that point. You start with like a you know a, a, a beginning. It's and it's somewhat vague. Like where is this leading? And you you end up saying like talk about non brevity, uh, like a thousand words. You know to and but at the end of that that narrative, it's it's like an interesting voyage that you know it's kind of like you're sitting, you know, on the floor in front of a fireplace and you're listening to your grandfather telling you. Uh, a story from when he was uh, from when he was a child, and the lessons that that he learned when he was a child, and it's it's an incredible uh, journey of of words. So the obvious that's the not so obvious. The obvious is that having grown up with that and, and not being really aware of it until you know my adulthood, that I do take a long time to explain things. And and in part, it has to do with the way you know the stories that I heard as a, as a child, and uh, and you have to really so um you know I can be very wordy, but at the same time, you know in business, you know you have to be very very brief. You have to like for myself, I have to force myself to say, okay, I'm going to cut the all the all these other details, just get to the to the crux of what the issue is. And then break it down in, in bullet uh, can points. I say one it. thing about the oral tradition. Uh, I finally, finally read last sure. year, I read Homer's Odyssey, which maybe is the most incredible thing I've ever read in my life. It's just, it blew my mind. And I read it and I did some background research. Apparently, Homer could not write. Apparently, he was blind, I think. And he regaled these stories to his thought followers, students, what have you, and they put it all together. To me, I don't even know how that's possible. It's a huge text. Yes, it's structured. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. But to think that somebody could sit there by memory, tell that story with all its details, all its plot points, and its gajillion million characters, and all these incredible factual details about the geography of Greece or ancient whatever at the time, it just blows my mind. It's just staggering. I don't even know if that's possible. Um, but to think that that thing came from somebody speaking and people listening and then writing that down, I mean, to me is a feat of humanity I don't think can ever be repeated again. Just because we don't have A, the attention span, B, the memory. <laughs> you know, that guy was carrying the whole thing in his head. He could probably sit there, okay, who's got 20 hours? All right, listen to this. And he just rattles off everything. Unbelievable. Stories grow in the telling. And his... And his Absolutely. Uh, right. His so it's, in many ways, it's a co-authorship. Probably a had some hands in people. the final form. And... Yeah, like the Bible, it has changed and evolved yes. and grown and, and shrunk in size over the centuries what we have now is what we consider sacred texts is was never like it was never born fully grown like that you know same with homer but to that point earlier about the odyssey coming out of an oral tradition you're you know it's it's true to be amazed that someone could retain in their brain all that factual detail all the all the the, the nitty-gritty pieces that the sort of like the uh, the tendons and the ligaments, you know, the, the bits that hold the story together and then also tell the story. 
but I would, I would sort of twist it a bit and say, think of it this way. Think of the Odyssey as performing art, performance art. Uh, if you think it's hard oh, to yeah. do that, look at a comedian. Look at a Dave Chappelle, for instance. They've, like, comedians talk a lot about the creative process, the writing process, and the good comedians who are honest say, I memorize everything, right? I'm not up there winging it. It looks like I am. And, you know, the good ones say it looks like I'm winging it because I spent years and years honing a craft to make it look like I'm winging it. But the fact is, it's a script. And I've like you, Alir, you used a great example in your process where you cut pieces and move it around like a jigsaw puzzle on your table. Comedians do the same thing. Dave Chappelle talked a lot about how he writes on he has rooms full of fragments of paper and he pulls them out, rearranges them, thinks about what works. And then he writes a script and then he memorizes that script. And he goes out and performs it, gets feedback, comes back, refines it. When he finally says, okay, this is done, and this is a nod to our previous uh, podcast about how do you know when it's done. But point is, when the, Dave Chappelle says it's done, and he goes on the road with that, every place he goes, he's telling the same story. It's crazy. And he's up there for 90 minutes. So it's crazy. So Homer was the same thing. I'm not saying he was a comedian. I'm saying he was mm. a performance artist. I do not like reading Shakespeare for the language. You know, you're looking up words, trying to figure it out. It slows down the process and it stinks. So what I've done, I guiltily admit this, is I read uh, Shakespeare in everyday English. There's a, a series called Shakespeare No Fear. So on the left page, you have the real Shakespeare. On the right, you have it in modern day English. I read the modern day English and it, I can knock off Romeo and Juliet in an hour and a half, two hours tops. You read it. You get all the plot points. You get the characters like, great. Wow, what structure? Wow, what fucking drama points? Uh, and I know I'm missing so much in the language, the jokes, the romance, the poetry, the flow of the words. But, you know, I'm getting the, the drama version. You know, the quick, easy to read, I understand. But I, I know I'm missing a lot and I'm lazy. So I go with the everyday English. But I, I, I know it's not the true experience. You know, I mean, you can make the Odyssey a comic book. I've seen the actual comic book version of the Odyssey. I haven't read it, but man, you're missing a lot. But, you know, it's a choice, right? But I guess, again, in Peter's and Ross writing, you can't be too florid. You can't be too, you can't have all the fireworks. You got to give me bullet points. You got to give me facts. So, you know, you make that choice, right? And you can make that in creative writing, too. You know, you can read a detective story. You know, I read recently, sorry, I'm not going to, I'll keep this short. I read uh, Agatha Christie recently, and it was awful. It was grade four, the reading level. I, it was just so terrible. I got 40 pages in, I couldn't do more. I read uh, Raymond Chandler, and it's magnificent. Just the jokes and the dialogue. And it's just, you know, you ha I mean, I could read... I get to Christie. I'm in grade three. I can read. I get the cry. And, oh, he did it. But it's just there's 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 nothing. There's nothing there. There's just there's no point to read it for me. But again, I can make those choices. And I think we should encourage people to tell their stories. And I think that the Betty S. Flowers role framework will help a lot of people who've found ways to avoid writing something that probably deep down inside they need to write instead of writing it they're going to end up living it but 
some stories you really don't want to live them. It's a mistake sometimes to be too tight, uh, but also it's a mistake to ramble. Some of the b- most powerful uh, stories are super short ones. Think of uh, the parables that Jesus told in, in, in the Bible. They are, if you actually look at them, they're super short. They're Dr. like Seuss. 10 verses most of the time. They're not the Odyssey. Well, yeah, even Dr. Seuss. Don't be lazy. Making a, artificially making a story shorter doesn't necessarily make it better. Artificially making a story longer doesn't necessarily make it better. What makes a story better is effort, is putting thought and exercise and discipline into it to make it better. Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, to what was said earlier, I, I, I think uh, Lear said that we're all writers. Um, and I would, I would embellish that to say we're, we're all storytellers. And um, if you do look at history, you know, the, the modern conveniences, especially now with the computer and, you know, all these things, all these tools that are at our fingertips, those things to write something down, even a pen and paper didn't exist for, you know, a good many people. So if you do have a story, whether, you know, it's in your, you know, whether you express it, you know, it's in your brain and you express it either orally or you write it down. Yeah, I, I agree with Alir. We're all, we're all uh, uh, storytellers and creators. Mm-hmm.